Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis 30. Genesis 30, we're going to complete that chapter this morning. Look at verses 25 through verse 43. Genesis 30, 25 through 43. You'll remember that we're looking here at the life of Jacob, the journeys of Jacob. And Jacob's this individual who has been or, or who has deceived, if you'll remember, his uh, father out of the birthright, deceived his brother out of the blessing, and uh, it's put him in a bad spot. Now he's on the run because brother's mad, and so he's taking off. He's running to this place known as Haran, he's going to run out there, and he's going to seek to find him a bride. But you remember, on the run, he stops off at a place called uh, Bethel, and Jacob is an individual who has heard about God. He's heard about God from his grandfather. He's heard about God from his father, but Jacob has had no personal experience with God himself. A lot of people, they heard about God, but they don't truly know God through faith in Jesus Christ themselves. That was Jacob. He's what I call a postcard believer. He's heard where everybody else has been and all the things that they've done, but he's never experienced it for himself. Well, you remember at Bethel, he experiences God. He has an encounter with God. God meets with him there, and he begins to see that God is big, and God is personal, and God is real. And God makes some promises, you'll remember. He makes promises to Jacob. And essentially, he says to Jacob, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Jacob, I'm going to make you greater than you can possibly imagine. And God begins to work in Jacob's life to make him great. Now, how does God make his children great? How does he make his children great? Does God use some pixie dust and sprinklers on us and we all of a sudden are mature and holy? Is that the way God works? No. God is a carpenter. He's not a genie. And so God puts us into what I like to call the laboratory of life. Puts us in life situations, puts us in trials, he puts us in various circumstances, and he uses the circumstances of life to begin to round off the rough edges of us, doesn't he? He begins to use the trials of life to shape us and to mold us into the image of Christ. And that's what God's doing in Jacob's life. He's going to mold him, he's going to break him down and rebuild him. And one of the first things that God does, you remember, God gives him a wife. And marriage will have a way of of shaping you want it. <laughs> and God will use marriage. And, and remember, Jacob is a, is a prideful person. One of the main issues that Jacob deals with is his pride. And Jacob, whenever his back's against the wall, what does he tend to do? He just relies on, on his own ingenuity, and he begins to manipulate and scheme. And so God's going to use marriage. But then what, is, what does God also do? God gives him a job. We're going to give you a job, and we're going to teach you to trust me. Not just any job. God gives him a job in a godless environment with a godless boss. And God is going to teach Jacob to trust him. Because I think as we go through this story, I think there's, there's some times where Jacob begins to think, God, if I trust you with this man, if I just live a life of integrity and character and faithfulness to you, Laban's going to run me over. If I trust you, God, then, then this is, I'm going to wind up without a family and I'm going to wind up destitute. That if I trust you, if I obey you, is it really going to work out? Are you really going to fulfill your promises? 
And I think the way this works in our life is a lot of times we think, well, this, this Christianity stuff, trusting in God and walking in faithfulness and obedience and character and integrity and demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Boy, Lord, that works out great at church. That works out pretty good in a perfect world. But God, that won't work over here in the business environment. You don't know my boss. Or you don't know my husband. Or you don't know my wife. That if I continue to be faithful and just be a person of character and integrity and godliness, then I'm going to wind up destitute. And guess what God is going to teach Jacob? I am faithful to my promises. I'm faithful to my purposes. And guess what, Jacob? I don't need your help. You know what I need from you? I need you to be faithful. You just trust me, and there is nothing too difficult for me. I can take the most godless circumstances and situations and turn them around for your good and my glory. You just rest in me. You just trust me. So, if you read ahead, this is not just about the breeding habits of goats and and, and sheep. <laughs> this is about God's faithfulness to fulfill his purposes and his promises. So let's pray together, then we'll, we'll work our way through this passage. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word. And I'm, God, I'm so grateful. Your, your word says all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction, for training and godliness. That your word is relevant. It's practical. That this story of Jacob in Haran, with a, with a guy named Laban, the principles of this text are applicable to us. And not only that, but they point us to Jesus. And God, help us to hear your voice today. Help us to put aside anything that would distract us. Lord, speak to us by means of your word. Bless the study of your word this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me. Verse 25 and 26, it says there, Now when it came about, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go on my own, uh, go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you, and let me depart, for you yourself know my service, which I have rendered to you. So Jacob, at this point, he's, he's worked uh, for Laban for somewhere around 14 years or at least 14 years. And, and the, the work that he's doing for Laban, this is not a 40-hour work week. Uh, you know, this is not Monday to Friday, eight hours a week. This is sun up to sundown, no weekends, no vacation. Uh, Le- Jacob's actually going to tell us in the next chapter, sleepless nights in the heat, in the cold, dangerous environment, and he ain't getting hazard pay. All right? And in fact, he's not getting any pay. He's making Laban. He's making Laban incredibly wealthy, but he himself, he's not earning anything. He really doesn't have anything to show for it except for a really big, big family, but he's not attained any real wealth, nothing of, uh, that he owns of his own. And so it appears that when, when Joseph is born, he kind of gets homesick, or, or maybe he begins to remember the promise of God that I'll bring you back to the land, and he starts to think, I want to go home. I want to establish a, a, a place of my own. I'm tired of working for somebody else. I want to start my own business. Instead of making this guy wealthy, I want to, I want to work for myself and, and create wealth for myself. I want to go home. And so he goes to Laban and he asks Laban, give me my wives and my children so I can go home. And it's an odd request because initially when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, why has he got to go ask Laban? I mean, he's worked for his wives. He's worked, uh, you know, these are his children. Why didn't he just get up and leave? Why didn't he just go, Why, pack up, middle of the night, take off? 
Well, you know, in that culture, it appears that in a legal aspect of this, these wives and children are not his. In fact, in, in Exodus uh, 21, verse 4, it says this, If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go alone. And I, I realize that's written later than this story, but it appears that there's some kind of cultural principle that if you were a slave and, and you had wives and children that your master gave to you, they, they aren't really yours. They're his. And so in the back of Jacob's mind, I think there's a very real possibility that if I take off, I'm going alone. That my wives and my children, they're not coming with me. My family's not going with me. I'm going to go it alone. And the only hope that he is, has of really having his family with him is the kindness and the generosity of Laban. And Laban is neither of those things. He's neither kind nor generous. So in a very, I mean, this is humiliating. He's going to ask Laban if he can leave with his family that he worked 14 years for. And so he asks in humility and, and look at uh, Laban's response in verse 27. He says, if it now pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. And Laban, it, it just sounds so sweet and kind, doesn't it? If it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me. And remember, Laban is not a God-fearer. This is a pagan. He has no interest in the things of God. He has only interest in how he can line his pockets. And don't you think it was insulting to Jacob who had worked so hard for him to say now, I have divined that God has prospered me because you're around. And Jacob's probably thinking, maybe you missed all that hard work I've been doing for you. You don't have to divine anything. You just have to watch me work for a day. But Laban, his response to Jacob is, if it pleases you, stay with me. Listen, the only thing that Jacob hears here is Laban say, essentially, you aren't going anywhere, brother. If you leave now, he's saying, he's saying it in a really nice way. Remember, Laban is a deceiver. He is saying to Jacob, if you head out now, there's no golden handshake, no deal-making here. Your family stays here. If you leave, you go alone. And verse 28 says, he continued, Name me your wages, and I will give it. But he said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I have turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you'll do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. So Laban says to Jacob, you're staying here, just name your wages. Now that sounds well and good. Imagine you showing up to your employer on Monday morning and them saying to me, just name your wages. You're so, uh, such a blessing to the company that we've decided you can just tell us what you want to earn. But in Jacob's life, what has he learned? This isn't the first time he's heard this, is it? About 14 years ago in chapter 29, when Jacob's hanging around the house and dating Rachel, and Laban says, we can't have you hanging around here and not get paid. Name your wages. And how did that work out for Jacob? He asked for Rachel, he ended up with Leah. And Jacob is learning, you don't make deals with Laban. He will outsmart you every time. And so Laban says, name your wages, what do you want? What, what shall I give you? And notice there, Jacob says, I don't want you to give me anything. 
Because I know how that works with you. If you'll just do this one, I'm just asking for one little thing. If you'll do this, I'll stick around for a while. This one thing. He makes a modest request, very modest proposition. Look in verses 32 through 33. He says, let me pass through your entire flock today, removing the, from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and the speckled amongst the goats, and sh- such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. So Jacob's saying, you, you're a deceiver. I'm going to do everything above board. I'm be, there's no way to cheat you on this deal. And so my honesty will answer for me later. When you come concerning my wages, everyone that's not speckled and spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Jacob knows how Laban's mind works. If you're a deceiver, you're always thinking everybody else is out to deceive you. Jacob saying, there's no way I can deceive you in this deal. I'm going to be completely above board. And what Jacob asked for, he's asking for the poorest and the weakest of the flock. He's saying that the, the, the things, the animals that you can't sell for anything, I'll take those. And not just the weakest of the poorest, he's asking for the oddity. He, he, the, I don't know that much about sheep and goats, but most of them aren't spot, spotted or speckled, and lambs aren't normally black. So he's, he's saying, I want the oddity, the rarity. And it was pretty normal in that day for if you shepherded uh, a flock for somebody else that you could ask for about 20%. Most of the commentators agree this is well less than 20%. Most of them think this is somewhere than less than 5% is all he's asking for. I'll, wear, I'll stick around and work for you if you give me less than 5%. The least and the worst... And I think that Jacob, I think, I think Jacob's trying to use some kind of reverse psychology on Laban. He's thinking, last time I asked for the best and I got the worst. Maybe this time I'll ask for the worst and maybe I get the best. I don't know. Um, I think, I tend to believe Jacob is motivated a little bit by pride. I, that's Jacob, that's always Jacob's issue. He thinks a little more highly of himself than he should. And I think in the heart of Jacob is, you give me the very least and the worst and I'll turn it into the best. That's how good of a shepherd I am. I think that's what Jacob thinks. Nobody shepherds like I do. And you give me the least and I'll turn them into the best. Kind of like, you know, a good coach. I don't need the best players. I can take average players and make them really good. That, I think that's the heart of Jacob. Others other commentators believe that Jacob is just trusting God. I'm going to trust God to, to, to get the very least, and God will, will bless me because God's made some promises. So he makes a very modest and, and humble request. And look at the response of Laban in verse 34. Good, let it be according to your word. And don't you think that scared Jacob to, to death? He, he agreed to this deal a little too quickly. Have you ever dealt with somebody that is, uh, they're so manipulative and deceitful that it just, it's like their mind works more quickly than everybody else's. And no matter what you put, no matter what you present, before you can even get the deal complete, they're already thinking of five ways they can turn it around for their own good. And that's Laban. And I think Jacob already sees it. What in the world's he thinking of this time? The wheels in Laban's mind are spinning, and he's thinking of a way he can turn this around for his own good and for Jacob's downfall. And we find out very quickly that's exactly what he was doing. Look in verses 35 through 36. So Laban, he, that's Laban, removed on that day the striped and the spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and gave them into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock." 
So Jacob here strikes an incredibly modest deal with Laban. And before he can lay his head on the pillow and wake up the next day, Laban has already deceived Jacob again. Laban quickly went to the fine print at the bottom of the agreement. I got some time here. In the middle of the night, he goes out there, takes out all the speckled and spotted, all the black lambs, gives them to the care of his sons and says, get them out of here. And before Jacob knows it, any hope of him accruing any level of wealth that would enable him to be free from the grip of Laban is gone like that. Laban, boy, Jacob thought he was a deceiver. Laban is beating him like a borrowed mule. He is whipping him. And Jacob at this moment, don't you think? I'm done. He's in an impossible situation. And, and by the way, I really do believe that at the heart of Jacob is, I think at this point, God is teaching him. I think Jacob's trying to do things above board. I think Jacob is trying to operate in integrity. I think that's why he makes a modest request. I think he still has some hope that he can turn it into something great. But I think he's trying to do things above board. I think he's trying to operate in integrity and in faithfulness to God. I do think at some level Jacob is trying to trust God. But where has it got him? Where has all his honesty and all his faithfulness and all his trust got him? It's got him zero. He's trusted God, he sought to be faithful, he sought to be honest, and now he finds himself in a hopeless situation. He's worse off, really, than when he began. A hopeless situation. But what do we know? Hopeless situations are where God loves to work. The impossible is the fertile soil of the divine. God, we see this in Scripture, he loves for the odds to stack up against him so that if there's ever victory, no way Jacob's going to be able to take credit for it. Nobody, anybody's going to take credit for it. And when man is at his weakest and the situation is the bleakest, that is when God loves to show off his power. But what does Jacob do? You know what I think Jacob does? Jacob does what Jacob do. Jacob deceives. He's going to manipulate. He's going to, he's going to scheme. That's what Jacob always falls back on. When he's pressed into a corner, he just says, I'm going to try to manipulate the circumstances. So, so look what Jacob does in verses 37 through 42. It says, Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and, and plain trees and peeled white strips in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks and the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink. And they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the stripe, and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the side of the flock in the gutters so that they would mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. Now, I believe that these verses right here should have a footnote at the bottom of them that says this, do not try this at home. I don't, have, I don't have an animal science degree, didn't go to A&M, didn't go to K-State, didn't go to OSU, don't have an ag degree, got a Bible degree. 
And I don't, have, I don't pretend to have any real understanding of animal husbandry or sheep or goats in that realm. However, I am fairly certain that you cannot duplicate this experiment and expect it to work out for you. I'm pretty sure that the peeling of bark from sticks and placing them in front of sheep and goats does not affect the nature of the color of the offspring that they bring forth. So what is going on here? Do you know what I see here? I see mandrakes. I see superstition. I see a man who is manipulating and seeking to Maneuver the circumstance for his own good. Folks, it's ridiculous. It's foolishness. But, but look at what happens. Look at verse 43. It's amazing. So, this, so the man, he's talking about Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. And you, you might be tempted to think, boy, if I got some goats, I need to start peeling sticks. This thing works. You know what I imagine? I imagine Laban, long after the story's over, telling his guys, hey, strip some bark on those things, and then getting really mad when it doesn't work out for him like it worked out for Jacob. Now, here's the deal. It's not the sticks that made the animals breed. It is, as Jacob eventually learns and recognizes in the very next chapter, it is the gracious and faithful hand of God that does this. And it's a reminder to us that there's no situation and no individual that can keep God from fulfilling his promises to his children. That's the lesson here. That no matter how bleak the situation, no matter how godless the environment, no matter how godless the individual like Jacob. The lesson is trust God. Walk in faithfulness. Walk in integrity. Walk even in your weakness. Trust God and he will show himself strong on your behalf. It's a reminder that there are no impossible situations with God. That we don't live in some closed universe of cause and effect. We don't, we don't live in a world where you say 2 plus 2 equals 4 and I need an 8 so I'm done. No, we have God outside the box. And if he wants to lead Israel out of the bondage of Egypt without firing a shot and get all of Egypt to contribute to the Exodus fund in the process, he can do that. If he wants to defeat a giant with a little shepherd boy and a sling and a stone, he can do that too. There's nothing too difficult for God. Our job is to trust him. No matter where you're at today, God sees your situation. He sees the tears. He sees the disappointment. He sees you when you are unfairly treated. Jacob's going to say that in the next chapter when he's talking to, 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 to Rachel about her dad. And he's saying, God saw how I was unfairly treated. God saw him. And what Jacob is learning is trust me. Even when the odds are stacking up against me, even when things aren't going well, you don't have to, to lower yourself to the level of Laban. You just trust me. I'll be with you and I'll take you home. 
That's the picture. But there's a bigger picture here. And I think as we go through Genesis, it's important to be reminded of the bigger picture. You remember all the way back in Genesis 3.15. 3.15, God made the great promise. 3.15, what did he say? He was speaking to the servant. After the fall of man, he was pronouncing a curse on Satan. And he said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. God said there's going to be this ongoing battle between the child of the devil and the people of God. And it's the meta narrative of Scripture. It's the foundation of the book of Genesis. We see this ongoing conflict. We've seen it throughout Genesis, haven't we? In the life of Jacob, even Jacob's life right here, when you study Jacob's life, it appears that there's this, this malicious force out there that is trying to take Jacob out. And what do we know? There is. We're going to eventually get to the life of Joseph. And you study the life of Joseph and you look at his life and it almost looks like there's some kind of malicious force that's always trying to take Joseph out. And what do we know? There is. We'll see it with Israel and the Egyptians. You see it with David and Goliath that these are not just horizontal battles. It is a spiritual battle between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, God's own people. You see it in Daniel. You see it in the book of Esther. You remember in Esther, Satan and the works in the heart of Haman, and he's going to kill all the Israelites. Time and time again. And who always wins? God always wins. Because no matter the conflict, no matter the circumstances, God is sovereign. And he has promised to send a Savior who will conquer sin, Satan, and death and set the captives free. And he has come. Amen? It's what we celebrate at Christmas, that a Savior has come. The Savior that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Don't ever let anybody tell you that Christianity began in the first century. You want to know where Christianity began? Genesis 3.15. You want to get technical, Christ was new before the foundation of the world. And all of Genesis and all the Old Testament, what are we seeing as we move our way forward? It's pointing us to the seed of the woman. We're looking forward to this promised child who would come. And in Genesis, it just continues to get narrower, doesn't it? We go from Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob now. And eventually we're going to see it's going to be Judah and Jesse and David. And eventually who? Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament law, all the Old Testament prophets create a crosshairs and a doorframe through which only Christ can enter. And he comes just as God said he would, he slips behind enemy lines under the cover of darkness in Bethlehem. It's like storming the beaches of Normandy. It was the landing invasion of God on earth. It was a rescue mission to save us. Christ came and he lived a perfect and sinless life. And he died on a cross for our sins. And Satan thought he had won. Just as Laban in this situation says, I got Jacob right where I want him. But what happened? God used the foolishness of a cross to save us from our sins. 
and an empty tomb to show us that he is who he said he was. And what has he done? He has achieved the ultimate victory over sin, Satan, and death. So that we, who just like Jacob, Jacob was broke. He wanted to go home, but he was broke. He had nothing. Not only was he broke, but he was enslaved to a deceitful master. Does that sound like any of us in this room prior to faith in Christ? We were spiritually broke, and we were enslaved to the ultimate deceiver named Satan. And Christ came, and he died, and he achieved the victory so that we could be freed, and so that just like Jacob, we could go home to the promised land. Isn't God good? Folks, this is a story. You can't make this stuff up. You know, um, I couldn't help but think... Jacob, as I've been reading ahead and studying ahead, Jacob, you know, he's going to become a grandfather. And he's got a couple of famous grandsons known as Ephraim and Manasseh. And, and I wonder if Ephraim and Manasseh, any of you grandparents, you know that grandkids like to hear. And if you're not doing this, you ought to do it. If you've got grandkids, every now and then you need to gather them up and tell them about the faithfulness of God. Because if you know Jesus, you've got some Jacob stories in your life where you said, boy, I had this nasty boss who was evil and mean, and guess what I did? I just trusted God. Sometimes I'd try to get down on his level. You know what? It never worked out well, but I trusted God, and you know what? God was faithful. And so I bet there were some times when Jacob gathered up Ephraim and Manasseh, put them on their knee, and Ephraim and Manasseh, they'd probably heard it a thousand times because the good stories you just keep telling, right? And I bet old Ephraim and Manasseh looked at Grandpa and said, tell us about Laban again. Tell us that Laban story. And I bet old Jacob's eyes went, yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, I was just a young dummy. I was trying to do the right thing. Old Laban, boy, he was a deceiver. He had my back against the wall. Yeah, tell us about how he stole the sheep and the goats. Tell us how he separated. Yeah, back was against the wall. Tell us about the sticks. Yeah, it was foolish. But God was gracious. And he was faithful. Boy, don't you think they loved that story? Do we have a story that we like to tell? I hope you hear it every week here at Lenexa Baptist. Certainly, we're going to tell it again at Christmas. Oh, it's a good story about a people who were dead in their transgressions and sins, broken and without hope. We were in an impossible situation. And Satan, he had us in his grip. Back was against the wall. And God came. He sent his son to free us. And what do we often say? Tell me the story again. Let's hear it one more time. Every week, I tell you, there's a hymn that comes to mind. Well, we got one. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above. Of Jesus and his glory. Of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child. For I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. 
Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in. That wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often. For I forget it so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the story softly with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always if you would really be in any time of trouble a comforter to me. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. And when the Lord's bright bright glory is dawning on my soul, tell me, tell me the old, old story that Christ Jesus makes thee whole. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Oh, God, you're far too gracious. God, we see so much of Jacob in ourselves deceivers broke spiritually broke enslaved to sin no hope within ourselves often attempting in foolish ways to save ourselves it's all foolishness thinking that somehow in our own effort in our own work we can free ourselves from the bondage to Satan and to sin And God, I'm so grateful that you didn't leave us in that place of sin, but you came for us. Jacob didn't didn't deserve anything but death and hell. And neither did we. But God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for providing salvation in such a fashion that all we must do is believe. God, I pray if there's any Jacobs here this morning, maybe watching online, maybe, maybe sitting in a chair in DeSoto or Fellowship Olathe in a venue service, and they're sitting there right now and they're beginning to understand I'm a sinner. And I find myself in a hopeless situation And I need saving. God, I pray that you would show them the wonder of your love in Christ who died for them. I pray that they would trust in you with all their heart for salvation. That you're a God who loves to redeem. Nothing is impossible with you. No matter where they've been, no matter where they find themselves today, nothing is too wonderful for you. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would walk in faithfulness. God, we we confess that far too often we think that somehow you need our help. We got to manipulate circumstances to help you out so that your purposes will be fulfilled. God, I pray that we would just always be faithful. Men and women of character men and women of godliness 
so that when you achieve the glory and the, the victory, you'll get all the credit. We love you, Lord. We're so grateful that we know that you won and you will win. And by faith in you, we will know that same victory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.